Telling it like it is. I'm your host, Matt, the Godfather Ely. And uh, Zara's in the house with us today. Hi, Zara Vignola. Good to be back today. Yes. Zara was on the road a couple weeks ago, and she did that uh, special report for us um, about climate change. And it's crazy because the climate seems to be uh, continuing to change for the worse. The, these natural disasters are getting crazy. We had the earthquake in Mexico. This week, yes. And, and then we had another hurricane that hit Puerto Rico and devastated the island. And actually have really close friends out there who I, one of my friends called me, or he texted me yesterday to let me know he was all right, but he lost his house. The uh, wind blew the roof off his house. And he's actually on the island of Culebra, which is a smaller island off of Puerto Rico. So... The, yeah, so getting aid to them from some of the larger efforts is tough. So we're going to be doing some of our own to try to help out our friends in the small island of Culebra. Um, so last week, uh, we had Lewis on the show during our polyamorous um, episode. And he is actually putting in a couple of uh, events this coming October. The first one is on October 5th in uh, Lake Commons uh, Bistro in uh, Ithaca, New York. And another one in his hotel, in Hotel Groton. And that's on October 5th and October 7th at 12 p.m. So if anyone want to drop by and support and, um, you know, help out, uh, you know, the sisters and brothers out in Puerto Rico, uh, you are more than welcome to do so. So, And it is a beautiful time of year to head up there for a very good cause. Uh, Ithaca is a beautiful town. The inn out in Groton is very, you know, as we mentioned last week, is beautiful. It's historic. The leaves will be changing and, uh, you know, to be helping our, our brothers and sisters out in Puerto Rico who our thoughts and prayers are with. So anyway, uh, this week, other than the natural disasters, we had um, the, the president uh, say shocker again, some ridiculous stuff when he called the players in the NFL a son of a bitch. He said that that any player that participates in the protest of kneeling during the national anthem, that the owners should fire them and throw those sons of bitches out of the building. And, of course, in front of a sh big crowd in Alabama of mostly white people uh, who cheered. Um, shocker. I mean, here's the thing. Like, everybody's outraged, but to me, not that we shouldn't be, but I just... Nothing surprised. I'm not surprised. Is, does, is there anything really shocking that can come out of this guy's mouth? Like, to me, it's kind of like uh, at least one day a week I wake up and I'm like, is Donald Trump really president? And then I, the reminder comes in, Donald Trump is really the freaking president. I mean, that's how he won. That's his platform to so, say the most ridiculous things. I so. mean, it's yeah. – I'm just kind of like, man, <laughs> get ready for whatever comes. But nothing this guy says shocks me anymore. Like, you know, anyway. So, yeah, anyway, we're going to move along to uh, this, uh, this, our topic this week, which is the topic of gentrification, something uh, familiar to all of us um, who live in New York City, especially. Um, the one plus one equals two. What is gentrification? The process of renovating and improving a house or district so that it conforms to the middle class taste or the process of making a person or activity more refined or polite. That's the definition of gentrification. MDG says this. Here's my take. Look, I'm all for improving the economic quality of any community. However, here's what I have an issue with personally is the process by which gentrification happens in a lot of cases, it, mainly in, in big cities with huge urban communities and urban communities, and then the fallout of what happens after it takes place. Um, so 
So yeah, so we're actually going to be exploring the different ramifications, right, of gentrification, who benefits from the process, who gets hurt in the process, right? Um, and in looking at the different changes that happens within different cities around the U.S., whether that be here in New York City, in San Francisco, in Chicago, all of those areas are going through a sort of similar state in terms of what gentrification is and maybe similar makeup of the population within those areas. So we're going to try to explore that with our today's guest and, yeah, and have that great discussion. Mm-hmm. And with that, we're going to introduce today's guest. going to welcome back to the show one of my favorite people, ah, my comrades, my road dog. Get out of here. <laughs> and also someone who, who, who's seen a little bit about gentrification, a, a fellow Brooklyn transplant like myself. Um, welcome to the show, Jim. Welcome back. Hey, man. Good to be back, dude. And, uh, you know, I would say welcome you to uh, Jim Jam Studios. Yes, we're actually recording <laughs> in for the first time the show in Jim Jam Studios in the sky in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. That's speak right. Speak about gentrification. What better place than to look over uh, all of West Some, Brook- East Brooklyn? I, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I recorded uh, uh this episode of uh, Swatches and Boomboxes, a podcast I do here, and uh, we had a guest on, Drew Doughty, and uh, Drew looked out my window and just said, yeah, that's a, gentri- that's a gentrifier's wet dream out your window, man, because you just got a lot of poor people, all you can look at. So just to give you a, a taste of uh, my view right now, it's nice, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of poor people because we're looking pretty east uh, into uh, like Brownsville, East New York that area it's funny if you look out over here towards east new york you'll see some cranes you'll see a lot of cranes going up and that's because uh, last year a little over a year ago they rezoned east new york and sure. uh, and already you see buildings and stuff out there so let's start with our co-host zara she knows a little something about gentrification because you well i grew up in new york city in general i've been in the city for about 23 years so i think my knowledge and sort of experience of what gentrification is is centralized mostly in queens as well as in the bronx i also lived and taught you know taught in the bronx for about eight years um so yes that's sort of like my experience my uh ideas of what gentrification is i think that there's a lot of factors that plays into it um you know whether that be a you know immigrant population blacks and latinos and as well as you know what it means to sort of like talk about development um that most of these uh companies and realtors kind of supposedly bring in right um so yeah yeah i mean you know i was uh you know, before coming into doing this episode, I did some research of my own. Um, and, you know, one of the things you have to look at when you're talking about gentrification is you have to go before gentrification even happens, right? So what I'm talking about is like redlining of neighborhoods and redlining of districts, which is the process, which it's illegal, but it still happens anyway, where they take different sections of town and there's literally red lines on a map that says mm-hmm. that we won't we won't give loans to these neighborhoods right. we won't provide services to these neighborhoods because quote unquote they are too financially risky and the likelihood of them defaulting on loans is so high that there are red mm-hmm. as in a danger so if you look at a lot of the neighborhoods i would say almost all of them that are now gentrified you'll see redlining happening across right. all of them so what ends up happening before you have gentrification is you have redlining and these neighborhoods deteriorate because the people who live there can't get loans. They can't mm-hmm. have access to things. So then those buildings start to fall to shit. And then that's when people come in and then they buy out they buy those out people. Buildings, so, right. you know, there is certainly, you know, it doesn't just happen one day where you have realtors come in and go, all right, I'm going to snap up mm-hmm. this property. They've deteriorated so far that people leave and they can't afford to live there anymore. So then you have these boarded up abandoned houses. So, I mean, that's just another part of the process that is government sanctioned. Mm -hmm. Like it was a government, like they were government sanctioned ideas of redlining neighborhoods. And then, you know, it lends itself to eminent domain where you have the government can essentially say, well, we want we're taking your property because it will better serve the community as a whole. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened when you had. And now this was generally done for highways and for roads, right. which 
would ultimately serve a community. But what you're having now is the Barclays Center. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't ultimately serve a community. Like right. that's a stadium, right? Mm-hmm. And if it does ultimately serve a community, it's people that can afford to go there, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. then you have all those different pieces of the puzzle that play into what we now see as gentrification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, so that started more in like the 40s to 50s when all the highways started sort of like coming in. And that was, you know, there was a highlight of, you know, the suburban life at that time. And so folks were trying to live outside of the city. And then how do we connect them? You create these roads, right? Sure. And, you know, the bridges, the transportations have to be created in order to connect them back into the city. But then what happens is that displaces a lot of the people who live there. So that whole eminent domain would mean, okay, so let's move you out or wherever you're going to go. Uh, so that we can put in all these roads and bridges and highways that exist. So that happened, like Cross Bronx and all of that are actually created well, then, under I that, mean, right? The suburbs ultimately right. lent itself to white flight because mm-hmm. you had black people moving into moving in. the cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is back, but then you had black people and, and Spanish folks moving into cities and then white people leave to right. the suburbs. So they still work in the cities. So then you have roads etc that are coming back in and out mm-hmm. so it's pretty it's uh pretty fucked up yeah i must say and to add to that you know and especially in communities of color which are it mostly who is infected affected by gender gentrification i'll clarify it's not only communities of color but mostly because most of the poor neighborhoods in urban cities happen to be black community, and brown people exactly so you know what you would have is Starting as far back as is is seventies, sixties and seventies, it was strategically conspired to f- push the flow of drugs, crime, certain activity into these communities. Lack of police enforcement as far as protecting the the, the residents that live there, um, and you know there was a there was a there was an old saying there's a reason why you would see liquor stores on every corner in black and brown communities there's a reason why the cops didn't wouldn't enforce day-to-day drug crimes instead they would allow them to happen and then do these huge investigations quote unquote to supposedly stop the problem but they really wouldn't because they would employ snitches and rats and people that were allowed to to push drugs and whatnot in the community so that they could then spend a ton of tax dollars on overtime and whatnot on these investigations and eventually take out some quote-unquote head, which they really weren't, because as soon as that person was in, then the next person was in and would keep the cycle going. This also helped with driving the value of these places down. Um, and, you know, once the values are down, then you have people that can come in with deeper pockets and buy the properties, a lot of the times cash, and for next to nothing, um, I so I was told about a time in Harlem in the 90s when you could basically buy a brownstone for a dollar with what you were saying where you had all these boarded up properties. They were selling brownstones for a dollar. In other words, they were giving them away, but just to say you bought it, you had to pay at least a dollar and then the back taxes or whatever. Um, so it's uh, that was part of what I was saying about the process of, of how do you set a community up for that red line or for that, you know, um, so that it puts it in certain people in position to benefit. Um, That's one. And then, of course, the role of the banks um, when it comes down to the approval aspect that Jim had mentioned earlier, but also how do you sort of depreciate the value of that area to allow others to take over? So even here in Brooklyn, if you're looking up different properties, the areas that you were mentioning, even in Brownsville right now, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of auctions that is going on here in um, Brooklyn. And a lot of them is probably going to be falling under those big realtors to, you know, quote unquote, develop those areas and uh, ensure that you have these resident buildings that are going to be a lot more expensive for most folks to actually afford. Yes. Um, so talk about your, your community where you live. Like what, what are the changes you saw? When, when did you move there? I started living there back in 94 um it's predominantly the area because in queens i was in woodside it was between woodside astoria um, long island city was where i was going to school and then you have um you know further out you'll have elmhurst and all these other areas which are still predominantly um a lot of immigrant groups that are still there right now but i think that that's sort of changing um over time so of course right now long island city is 
extremely expensive. It came from the time when it was all these abandoned buildings, warehouses uh, that existed there at that time period, and then started developing into this, uh, you know, residential areas that are now, you know, if you're planning to live there, or even, you know, own some kind of uh, unit or property there, they'll probably well over, you know, millions of dollars. Um, so it went from, you know, from that to that, you know, the abandoned warehouses to, you know, putting in that kind of value because it is across, you know, from Manhattan. So I think the idea there is like, of course, as close as you are to the city, then it's a lot easier for them to sort of like, you know, take over those areas and develop them into these residential areas. Now in the Bronx, living in the Bronx is a little, um, I think slower because Harlem and like the upper part of Manhattan would have to completely gentrify and then seeps in into uh, the Bronx. But then again, similar to, you know, putting in like something like the Barclays Center, right, is the creation of that new stadium. Uh, you know, there is no need for another stadium even in the Bronx, right? Um, but then it was created in order to sort of attract uh, new businesses, you know, to come in into those areas. And so um, you would go into different areas of the Bronx right now that are also changing. Um, and it will, there will be a time where it will be similar to like what's happening in you know other parts of New York City, like here in Brooklyn. Hmm. Yeah, I it's um, it's a crazy process because I think I started coming back to New York City as an adult in a, around uh, ninety nine, maybe two thousand, and then I would see like places that I would go start to change rapidly, like one place that I I remember the Lower East Side. Like how that changed from the time that, and, and I think that the Lower East Side is one of the examples of places that completely just got gentrification came in like a, a, a storm and just rocked it. Harlem started to be gentrified, but what happened in Harlem is Harlem started to push back, and where a lot of the people of color that it, because because a lot of people don't realize because of that portrayal and by design of Harlem. People don't know the history of Harlem. Harlem was one of the first middle to upper middle class black communities. And, and, and once upon a time, that's what it was. It was working class to upper middle class black people with money. And, and it was like a nice place to live. It was a quiet place to live. It's where my great grandparents or my grandparents, my great grandparents settled there to raise a family. It wasn't until the heroin epidemic, which once again was by design, and that's a whole other conversation and topic for another show, came in and started driving. By the 80s, it had turned Harlem into a war zone, which was not what it was you know, prior to that. Um, but there was a lot of people that held on the roots there. There was a lot of still a, a significant number of people, black-owned businesses, properties, and whatnot, people who had been trying to fight to gentrify the neighborhood for people of color by people of color but those people were always demonized or made you know the the uh the uh powers that be always found a way to make those people seem like they were uh you know bad people i.e malcolm x um marcus garvey and 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 other people who tried to who spoke in favor of improving the community around them um so these people actually, you know, there was a, a there there was somewhat of a halt, or not a halt, but a slowdown. So what you will see in Harlem is you will see uh, populations of white people or uh, privileged white people at that walking around that you would have never saw before. But they didn't completely completely get decimated like the Lower East Side did, or. Some parts of downtown Brooklyn did where the only people left that were originals there are people who live in projects, basically the project housing or you have like one or two buildings where some of the working class people formed a co-op out of the building they lived in and like bought the building themselves. So it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a um, it's um, I don't know. I don't interesting is the word to use, but it's there is I mean, there is a lot of class factor that plays with it. That's really where it comes down to. And I think, um, you know, given the history here in the U.S. in general, that kind of, you know, conflates together when it comes to the race and the class issue. Um, but I think that for the most part, 
uh, when we're talking about gentrification and the changes, um, we also have to look at like the component of the people who gets pushed out, who gets to move in, and who gets to, um, you know, sort of utilize uh, the benefits of, you know, supposedly um, what gentrification is bringing in, right? So we want to actually um, ask Jim some questions. Maybe talk a little about your neighborhood. Um, how long have you been living here? What's the change like? Sure. Yeah. <coughs> um, so I've lived. I lived in Crown Heights uh, for mm, ten, mm, excuse me. 10 years now and yeah even within those 10 years you've certainly i've certainly seen the dramatic shift of what my neighborhood looks like um you know i uh you know i truth be told like on paper yes i'm a gentrifier like i didn't grow up in new york city i mm. moved into a building that was pretty cheap and you know i certainly you know i don't want well Again, on paper, yes, that's what I look like. But for me, I think what really kind of differentiates between a gentrifier or someone who moves into a neighborhood who's not from here, who mm -hmm. finds a cheap apartment or whatever, versus a gentrifier is how do you interact with the neighborhood around you? Mm -hmm. Do you walk by people who are from here like they're ghosts? Do you, for example, do you support local businesses here or do you go to the Atlantic Center and go to Target and buy shit there mm -hmm. and don't support anything that's happening around your neighborhood? And if you are supporting that neighborhood, in what manner are you doing it? Now, like when I say that, I mean, if take, for example, what's that shitty place, Summerhill? Uh, oh, yes. And I'm sure we're going to end up talking about it, but well, just let's yeah. do it now. Uh, so, I mean, this bar, I mean, it opens up and it's this woman, Becca, whatever the fuck her Becca last name. Becca Brennan. Yeah. Becca Brennan opens this bar and, you know, it's supposed to be, you know, a new, you know, of course, new restaurants in the neighborhood, et cetera. Right. So, yeah, within that support, and I put that in the biggest quotes I can, you have someone who's treated the neighborhood like a prop, right? Mm -hmm. Like yeah. this. Mm -hmm. Like there's and you know, there's bullet holes in the wall and there's or she call, rose. Yeah, she, she pretends that it's bullet yeah, holes. Yeah, and and but then like you know, then I mean we'll end up talking about her weird ass comments. But right. I mean, as I get sidetracked onto her dumbass. Uh, so I mean, yes, I've seen the neighborhood change. Um, you know, and again, I think for me at least my support of the neighborhood and being and being active in my neighborhood, you know, really does separate me from what would be a textbook gentrifier. Like when uh crowbar opened up this bar in my neighborhood, mm -hmm. yeah, there was crows painted all over the bar and the neighborhood was pissed and there was a huge shit storm surrounding it. And yeah, I certainly voiced my opinion. I joined I joined up with some of the community activists here mm -hmm. and did what I could to help fucking let these people know that this isn't cool because right. that's another side of gentrification yeah. is who are these who are these businesses ultimately serving yeah. they're not serving the people who lived who who are from here mm -hmm. they're serving the people who are not from here so fuck them yeah i mean one of the things that i think is important to sort of note is when we're talking about the culture right sure. um you know coming from queens queens have always been sort of like a hub of many migrant groups so you could go from like different neighborhoods and you'll have the enclaves that exist there so whether that be the you know the latino enclaves you'll have the the asian groups who move in into certain areas and that sort of disappears right when gentrification kind of happens because then all these businesses like what you mentioned earlier the large business would come in and you have the starbucks and all of this you know typical Typical right. chains that would come in and would then change, the, you know, the the more local sort of spots that you would go to. So you no longer have those ethnic stores that you'll normally see and like, you know, try to, um, you know, find any local spots wouldn't be sort of possible. In a story, it's very interesting because there are certain spots that are able to maintain it. But I think, like I said earlier, it comes with class because sure. obviously every single group has its own, you know, sort of like class structures, right? You'll have certain folks who are going to be wealthier than others. So depending on where they're coming from, they can sort of influence um, what, what sort of stays there. So like in Astoria, there are still, you know, there are still some Italian um, businesses. There are some Greek 
businesses that remains there but then the other bigger stores become sort of like the typical chains and that's where that aspect of gentrification kind of applies um, but then I'm starting to see that more and when you go and move into like Woodside and even Elmhurst where you have the other chains to come in and then the smaller stores that used to exist there uh, would no longer be around and so I think that is sort of what happens. It becomes like this, a, a bigger component of gentrification is creating like this monoculture uh, where all of them are, you know, within the chains, all of them are these larger stores that, you know, serves the same people, serves the same type of items and things that you will, you know, find in that area. So, Well, yeah, and, you know, and then it, and I think it then comes back to the price, right? Like Target can charge a fraction of what, a mom and pop can charge mm -hmm. because they have so much volume and they have so much demand. So it's like for people, yeah, it's definitely a hard sell because right. it's like, why would I go spend $5 for a roll of toilet paper when I can go to target and buy an entire right. fucking bushel for $5. Mm -hmm. so. yeah. mm -hmm. and, and, and it's kind of like where I live in Bushwick, which is, I mean, I counted like, I think there's, 10 buildings being built e that are either completed construction or are still in completion of construction. I've lived there for a year now and I moved there for two reasons. I moved there once one because I needed diversity, something similar to where I grew up and where I was living before <laughs> was in Maspeth. There was no diversity. <laughs> so I moved to Bushwick there and because there was an appreciation for art culture there, which not to be confused with Williamsburg, like some people are like, oh, the hipster. Um, and I, I think sometimes people don't know what a hipster means. I think sometimes people think hipster means anybody who's like uh, newer moving. When hipsters are specifically like trendy people who keep up with trends and are like, you know, bougie ass snobby people. Artists, musicians usually aren't hipsters unless the art or music they do is considered trendy. So anyway, I wanted to move to Bushwick because there's graffiti on the walls. There's murals. There's things like that. Things that you won't see in a, you know, you're not going to see that in Williamsburg where all the people who work on Wall Street live because they don't want, they want new modern glass brick and mortar buildings that look, you know, a certain way, fancy. Where in Bushwick, there was more, you know. Here's instead of seeing an ugly brick wall and seeing it as, oh, that's ugly graffiti, it's seen as art. And there was other musicians and other like minded people who live there. So those were the two reasons I, I moved there um, within the year that I'm that I've since I've lived there. There's a massive building going up across the street. There's another massive building behind that. There's a building down the street. There's like two behind me. It's just the amount of construction is crazy. And I'm like. In my mind, I'm like, man, is this going to bring, you know, is this going to kill the character of the neighborhood? Because that's what you see. That's what has happened in a lot of these other neighborhoods where gentrification has happened. And not even, you know, aside from the, the economic standpoint, which we'll get to, like some of these neighborhoods, like if you, even if you look in Chelsea or the meatpacking district, places like that where these weren't necessarily poor, quote unquote, communities or, um, you know, predominantly uh, neighborhoods of color like you had, you did have populations of, like in any city, in any part of um, lower Manhattan, uh, people of color, but um, working class people. And now they're like getting rid of these original buildings they're building these new luxury, crazy looking buildings that all look the same. And the neighborhoods lose character. You know what I mean? And that's one aspect of it. Um, the other thing which we haven't, which we've kind of brushed against, but it is the biggest factor and, and problem that I have with gentrification is that when you come into a neighborhood and then you raise the prices of rent so high. Oh, let me rewind a conversation that I had. I had a conversation with a, a coworker, and I won't say that person's name because I want them to look at who in their mind, they were a privileged person that came from a place of privilege. They consider themselves to be somewhat conscientious and try to hear. But in their mind, they're like, well, you know, doesn't it make sense that you don't want crackheads and 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 people that are like sponging or, or, or that aren't doing anything to benefit the neighborhood and whatnot? Or in their mind, they're thinking, isn't this a better thing? And I'm like, no, because this is the myth. The majority of the people that get displaced 
a lot of these people are working class people. These are people making working jobs at hospitals or schools or or um, whatever it, it might be. I mean, it's not a Wall Street job. They're not these these, but their incomes are less than sixty thousand a year. Um, which let's be honest, even in New York City, if you make a hundred thousand a year, you're not you're still middle class. You're still like working class, dead in the middle class, depending on where you live. There is people that you go from paying $800 a month for a three-bedroom apartment because you have a family and you may have a mom and a dad. It could be a single-parent household. But even if you have a mom and dad, two two working parents, that, and combined they make less than hundred grand a year, and then you jack the rent, and they have a, two kids, let's say, and then you jack the rent up from $800 to $3,000, which and and that in some cases more in areas like the Lower East Side, a three bedroom apartment could be like four thousand dollars, thirty eight hundred. How are they supposed to be able to afford to stay there? Well, they're not exactly. <laughs> so now they, what you have in New York not. City is you have the uh, insane increase of the homeless. Like people talk about, oh, the homeless, the ho- the the uh, population of homeless people has increased like insanely but what they don't realize these are not people that don't have jobs most of these people that are homeless are working homeless people they simply can't afford to live and even if say the neighborhood does have those issues whether that be you know the drug issue or whatnot if you push them out does that mean that it resolves the issue right that's one um the other aspect to it is working in so i worked in brownsville for a couple of years as well i was teaching there and um they are pretty much indoctrinated with the concept of you know constant policing in the area sure. these are you know students who at the age of i don't know in the elementary school they are used to uh shooting drills they're not just doing fire drills in their schools, right? And so they're really, um, it's really the issue within the neighborhood is more of that. Who Who is responsible for all of those issues as opposed to just saying, we're going to bring in some developers who are going to kick out these people in the neighborhood and they can't afford to, um, you know, to live there. The other aspect is what are the different things that the, um, the owners of these buildings actually do in order to kick them out, right? How do you ensure that they won't be able to renew their lease other than, raising the um the rent on the people who actually live there you go from you know cutting off heat for example in order to push them out you don't fix you don't fix anything in the building so that they will be forced to move out um or you know anything that is needed within the building will then you know not occur and um i think that's the other bigger issue you know the people who are living in these neighborhoods it's not that they're choosing you know not to work or you know not to do anything for the families but at the end of the day it goes again to sort of like this issue of class and race and what it means to not resolve all of this right and who should be responsible for that when that's going on so i think um yeah i want to ask jim about what are some some of the things that you saw in terms of uh that process who tends to benefit in the process of gentrification what sort of like uh the things that you've seen um well i mean who ultimately benefits from gentrification uh are the the gentry that move in right like if you are you know whatever if you're a kid whose parents are paying their rent and you move into the neighborhood yeah you're gonna have better services and you're gonna have police presence like if you look at i mean if if i look at my neighborhood from 10 years ago to now there's way more police on Mm. franklin ave than there was before why because there's rich people who have moved into the neighborhood. People they care about keeping safe. That they want to keep safe. So, I mean, I think, yeah, the people. People who matter. The, yeah, the people who, you know, actually uh, should, because their lives are more valuable than poor people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, that being said, I mean, those are the ones who ultimately benefit. Uh, I mean, is there is there an ancillary benefit from people who still are of a lower economic strata? Sure. Like, if I if I'm holding on by the skin of my teeth, will I will there? I mean, if I'm holding on to the skin of my teeth in my apartment, right? There's probably going to be a bunch of cool new restaurants that I kind of can't afford to go to, but mm-hmm. I do know that now that there's going to be police around. So like, <laughs> y- 
yeah, I'll get that sort of residual effect of uh-huh. gentrification. But again, if I can't afford to live in my neighborhood and there's, you know, vegan barbecue places that pop up, like, <laughs> what does that do for me? I, yeah. I don't I don't see that. So, yeah, yeah I mean, th- by and large, the gentry ultimately benefit from right. gentrification and the poor people see maybe some residual effect before they're pushed out. The biggest factor also in gentrification when these businesses do come in, right? Um, their argument actually in building any large establishment, whether that be the Target that you mentioned earlier, or even when IKEA came in in Red Hook, the, the whole argument about it was they're supposed to be hiring people who right. live in the neighborhood. Oh, you mean thirteen dollar an hour jobs? Right. That so that's the whole point. Is it won't cover their rent anyway. It won't cover my rent anyway. <laughs> but they can work Tight. there. So. <laughs> Well, I guess if you work at IKEA, you can at least build a bed and sleep there because you don't have anywhere else to live. So that's, that's right. I guess that's a benefit. I didn't think about it that way, but no, but you that's the Swedish argument. Meatballs. Yeah, yeah, you get Swedish meatballs, meatballs for breakfast there. <laughs> so yeah, but I mean, again, that's like the myopic idea of like, so yes, we're gonna bring in businesses to these neighborhoods, et cetera. Well, you're not. You're bringing in jobs that won't afford the rent that you're charging in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, fuck that twice. Do so do you already see a um do you see a is there a disaster on the horizon for all this? Is there a rapid dis- building ra- rapid building? I mean on the horizon, I don't think so. I mean what you're going to well, I don't know, because, I mean, I think eventually what you will probably see and we're starting to see now is is that if you're building these buildings, so if you're building so many buildings so quickly and you're charging so much, eventually people aren't going to be able to afford it. Right. Right. So you're going to have these buildings that will sit empty and we see what happens when buildings sit empty. Yeah. Uh, people fuck them up. But I mean, that I'm reaching i don't know any sort of uh stats on that so i don't know if i can speak to it but like that's just pulling off out of, out of my pocket like what i could see potentially happening so i was talking with a friend who works on wall street and works with a lot of real estate developers and he was telling me he's like a lot of these buildings these new buildings that are up he goes they're mostly vacant but they don't show up because what happens is he said developers will build them and then they will not put the, they'll take the apartments off the market so that way they don't show up as vacant because if they if 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 they're on the market and they're vacant, it's it drives the value down or something. So he was I forget what he was explaining. He goes, if they if they actually are on the books as vacant properties, it drives the value, the yeah. property value down. Right. So they yeah. take them off the market. They leave them off the market. And the problem with that is, is they're building more. They're building more and more. And this is my thing. Like one of the things I love about New York is also one of the down there's a tale of two cities but there is you get to see with your own eyes what the possibility is Mm -hmm. to be in 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 the world however at the same token there's a certain reality there's only so many people that can afford to live to pay that kind of rent so my question is what's going to happen when you're building 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 and nobody can afford to live in these buildings you know what i mean like you go into the same cycle and what yeah, they're I mean, doing the housing bubble at some point. Right? Yeah, and another right. thing that they're doing now that that I, I, has been fishy to me, like it's supposed to be a solution. But I'm like, mm, this seems fishy, like part of the whole conspiracy. So what they've started doing, as I mentioned earlier, the working homeless, what they've started doing is they started building all these hotels around the city, like around where I live in, in Bushwick right now. There's like five hotels, new hotels that went up in the last like. I don't know, maybe last two years because a couple of them were there when I moved in and a couple of them they were building. There's like five hotels right there around the area near the Bed-Stuy border. And what is with these hotels is though they are technically hotels, like they do rent certain check rooms out to certain people, a huge portion of these hotels are actually serving as homeless shelters that are subsidized by the city. So somebody's making money off the subsidies, obviously. And... They, they're able to stay in business because these people that are working homeless have to live there. And they don't live there for free. Like, 
Mm-hmm. At least not all of them do, because I've actually interviewed people mm-hmm. who are living in these, and they they got to pay to live there. They but they pay like a smaller fraction or whatever. They're still paying to live there, though. Which you know, if uh, you know, I talked to a lady. She worked in a hospital and she made like sixty eight thousand a year, and she had two kids. And when you make sixty eight, and, and this is a lady with a degree. She's mm-hmm. a d- degree, and she's making a little over sixty-eight thousand a year working in a hospital. So it's not like, you know, in your mind you think if you go to school, you get a degree, good degree, you have a career, you're you should be able to afford to live. Like she can't afford to live. Mm-hmm. Not and not she can't afford to live anywhere with that is within an easy traveling distance for her to go to school to go to work. You know, right? You, you end up having to move like way out in Jersey somewhere, or way out in Long Island, which then in itself adds other expenses and in life inconveniences. The transportation and whatnot. I mean, that is... So that's always the question, right? At the end of the day, who's going to be living in these areas, right? And what happens to the ones who gets kicked out? Who knows? Homeless <laughs> or move to Mars, I guess. I don't know. That's, that's the question. Well, I, so... Moving to other cities where I've seen gentrification. So when I witnessed gentrification in New York, what I would see is what they do is they buy buildings that already exist and they just up a lot of times update them, except for in Bushwick or areas where there is still wood frame houses. Those ones, a lot of times they will just tear down and rebuild. But in most cases, they just buy the buildings that exist and then they renovate and update those buildings and raise the rent. Um, That's what happened in the Lower East Side. That's what happened in a lot of the parts of Brooklyn that had brownstones or houses or, or just regular apartment buildings, uh, tenement buildings, so to speak. Um, what they do in Houston. So when I was a kid in Houston, um, Houston is another city that has like 12 different levels of class. You know what I mean? You have extreme poverty ghetto. Then you have a little bit above that. Then you have hood, which is like lower middle class then you have like middle middle class and you have upper middle class then you have lower upper class then you have upper class then you have the elite <laughs> you know what i mean like this the elite billionaires so everybody knew that the wards those were like the innermost like, like so houston is a big giant uh square or circle-ish if you will with layers in that circle at the middle of it is downtown houston the first ring of, of communities that surround downtown Houston were known as the wards. Everybody knew, other than First Ward, which they didn't even call First Ward because that was just the main downtown area. Nobody really lived there. And Sixth Ward, which was mainly really like the Heights, and it was a, the small Jewish community that we actually had in Houston lived there at one point in time. But every other ward, uh, Third Ward, which... Actually, a lot of part was kind of like Houston's Harlem, where working class and up, upper class people of color lived. But there was also housing projects there. And then there was Fourth Ward and Fifth Ward. Second Ward was the Latino, the barrio. And third, fifth, Fourth Ward and Fifth Ward were just the ghetto. Fourth Ward and Fifth Ward were like the worst of the, of the wards. Um, it was predominantly... Uh, black um when you would drive through fourth ward you would like it, w- it was one of those places like the minute you would drive through people would chase your car like if you looked like you weren't from around there and you dr- they would chase your car because they thought you were there to like buy drugs and whoever could get the, the there used to be a term track star that term track star that they use is because whoever was the fastest the first to get to the person mm-hmm. was the one that got to sell them whatever it was they were looking for and these houses looked like little uh, shacks. They were like little white shacks in rows on bricks. And it was just, it was crazy. It was a place you didn't want to go. And not only if you were white, but even if you were not from there, you didn't want to go there. So about around 2002, 2000, no, around the year 2000, they slowly started changing the city, gentrifying. The way they did what exists where Fourth Ward once used to be now is now called Midtown. Houston never had a Midtown before. Houston now has Downtown, Midtown, and Uptown. 
And how they gentrified there is they bought the properties and they just wiped all the houses out. Like they just got rid of all the houses, completely wiped them out, and which wasn't hard because they were they little, vacant. No, they displaced they all the people. Oh. They displaced the people. Um, they used the eminent domain in a lot of cases. Um, and here's the thing about Texas. Texas is a red state. In a place like New York, you've got a lot of red tape to go through because there's so many people. There are advocacy, ad, advocacy groups that exist that try to... In Texas, bottom line is if you're rich, you're good. You know what I mean? You have power. And they just went through it like within a few years, Fourth Ward pretty much didn't exist anymore. And they used the, the typical... Uh, one of the typical tactics of gentrification with real estate is once they start gentrifying a neighborhood, they change the name of it. Mm-hmm. Sure. They change the name of what they call East Williamsburg. There uh, was talk of making Crown Heights Crow Hill. There you go. Like, uh, or no, what was it? Um, yeah. Yeehaw, East Harlem. Yeah, well, they have like a version of Soho. So, yeah. <laughs> so bro. It was yes. so <laughs> uh, God, it was... It wasn't... Because cr- this was originally Crow Hill, but they had some sort of like trendy name for it. Um, but yeah, I mean, of course, because there's the stigma attached to, to the name, I'm sure to the names like fourth ward, I'm sure held its stigma, whereas Harlem has its own, Mm -hmm. like you don't want to go to Harlem. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's because again, you're trying to sell to rich white people who have money. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess that makes them rich. They ultimately would have money. Uh, but yeah, so they then say, well, I don't want to live in Bushwick. I'd rather live in east williamsburg so yeah yeah it's uh it's it is a and and, and, and here's a, one of the things uh on, on the flip side it is like there is those mixed emotions because it's like it's messed up because to some degree um not even to some degree to a massive degree it is it's it's like housing terrorism like you're forcing people out you're making people homeless that have lived in the community for years and then there's that Side for people that are transplants where you feel guilty that, oh, I like, oh, there's a cafe right there where I can go and have my coffee. <laughs> and there's a new bar where, yeah, but it's. Uh, but again, that ultimately comes back to what, like, I mean, for me at least, like, because, you know, I live in Crown Heights and, you know, I certainly have seen shit bars come in that are tone deaf to the neighborhood. They don't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. they think that they can survive on transient business. And then they find out that they can't, and then they try and appease the neighborhood. But, you know, as again, as a transplant, like, you find the places that are trying to embrace the community. And, you know, I don't think that, like, I mean, it. I wouldn't paint with a broad brush and say that every bar and restaurant that's come into Crown Heights is terrible because there are those bars and restaurants that understand that they are part of a community that's mm-hmm. not theirs. And they are then saying, okay, well, we welcome you to the community. We would like to embrace. We, we're we not stepping on your toes. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Then there's other places that come in that do, in fact, do that. And, I mean, case in point, like, you have uh, Crowbar, which changed its name to Franklin 820 when they originally came in. Uh, and they had crows all over the place. And the community board said, look, we don't want you to offend the fuck out of us. The owner said, too bad. Like, I've named this bar Crowbar, and that's what it's going to be. And so the community protested. Uh, they stood outside. They did, you know, we did what we needed to do. I don't say they. I was certainly there. Uh, and then eventually, I mean, I think it was probably like eight months later, they changed the name. Mm-hmm. But that's day late, dollar short. Didn't you have a conversation with this dude about it, too? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, I saw the dude around. I don't know his name, but like, I didn't like get in his face and be like, yo, change your fucking bar. Um, I mean, I've talked to people in the neighborhood about it who are kind of like, well, I don't understand. Like, you know, and it's, it was a, there's a bartender at this bar around here who was just like, well, I think it's, you know, you know, I don't really, you know, if he wants to call it that, then I don't know why people should be why he should have to it's his bar and i'm like well here's the deal you don't get to tell people that they're not offended mm-hmm. like you don't get to punch me and tell me i'm not hurt so if you put up a bar that's called crow it's called crowbar and crow <laughs> crow being a derogatory term for black people right. and that pisses me off you don't then get to say well 
I didn't mean it like that. Well, yeah. you did. And that's how it's intent right. versus impact, ultimately, right? Yeah. So I guess the point being that these businesses will come in that are flagrantly offensive, like that Summer Hill place and uh, what we now see is yeah. uh, Franklin 820, is that you need the community to to support, to support your business. Yeah. You can't survive off of transient business. Yeah. And, you know, it's like once you – if you alienate the community, they will go somewhere else, right? Like this isn't a bus boycott where, like, shit, there's only one bus that runs through town. You mm-hmm. know how many fucking bars and restaurants there are in Crown mm-hmm. Heights? So if you're going to be a garbage piece of shit and offend offend me, I'm going to go somewhere else. And I'm going to tell everybody I know in the neighborhood, that place is fucking terrible. We're going to go somewhere yeah. else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the most important part is that, you know, how does the community, um, you know, respond to everything? It's not so much that... You know that no one should move in, right? That's not really a question of having a transplant or having you know new folks coming into the area because the trend in, especially in New York City or any major cities, there's always a trend of you know new folks, new people coming in. Well, shit, man. I mean, New York City. And sorry to cut you off, but New York City is a set in. Maybe it's my uh, ego of New York speaking, but it's the capital of the fucking world. People Mm -hmm. from around the world move here. It's the history of New York. That's what makes it. That's that's what what makes it New York. Is that people come here from everywhere to start a new life, to pursue a dream, to do whatever. And yeah, that's certainly. And I'm. I'm not taking the stance of like, don't fucking move here because I wouldn't be here, right? But the stance that I am taking is is that if you do move here, don't act like this is a fucking foreign world yeah. and treat the people that are from here like they're strangers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and expect the community to change for you instead of you adapting. To oh, the dude, there that's, it's funny you bring that up because, you know, in Crown Heights, they have the West Indian parade. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's this woman who this fucking batshit crazy white woman who, um, like had called the police, like before the parade, you know, I mean, Eastern Parkway turns into a playground. It's fucking dope. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before it, there's bands that are practicing all around the neighborhood, and it's the one. It's the one time out of the year that this is the time for them to do this. This is part of Crown Heights. Mm-hmm. The West Indian neighbor, the West Indian community, has such a foothold here in the in Crown Heights. Right. Anyway, this woman repeatedly was calling the police about noise complaints about these <laughs> bands that were practicing and it's like bitch are you fucking serious like you're gonna move <laughs> into this neighborhood right and then make a change for you yeah and that's such bullshit because like i mean this it's it's i can't imagine you know i mean again i'm not from here but i could not imagine how infuriated i would be if someone in my cult like i'm celebrating my culture i'm celebrating who i am my mm-hmm. identity you then move here from fucking Iowa and then tell me that I can't do this where I'm from. Yeah. Right. So fuck that lady. Yeah. It was the same thing with uh, it happened in the Lower East Side with the Lower Cider Festival. Sure. I People bet. moving in and they were like complaining about it. And then don't fucking live there. Is that, How about exactly. that? Exactly. It's like, <laughs> you, who the fuck are you to move in and start telling something's been a custom for yeah. it's not like people are downstairs like if there's a crime happening and you call the cops that's one thing but you're you don't like a custom of this neighborhood because it's not something that works for you so you expect it to change when you're the guest here and also you're the one who you're the one who invited yourself and this isn't the and this isn't something that's happening every day I'm sure the Louis Sida festival happens once a year mm-hmm. the West Indian parade happens on Labor Day Okay, so it is three days out of 365 where, yeah, you're going to be, quote unquote, inconvenienced because these are the these are the people that live here. This is their culture. This is what they do. Right. But again, uh, we're talking from a stance of uh, empathy and compassion. So sorry about that. That snowflake is Jim. That is I was doing a lot of cuck talk. Right Don't there. be a freaking snowflake. Cuck is my cuck. favorite. Cuck is my favorite liberal. <laughs> I still insult. haven't had a clear definition of what cuck is. Okay. People have told me a like cuck, five different. No. Uh, th- well, here is this is the the de- like the textbook definition of a cuck. Right. It's short for cuckold. And it's someone who. 
Uh, it's a guy who lets someone fuck their wife while they watch. That's being a cuck, right? Now, the, someone <laughs> told I know it's fucking stu- it's so fucking stupid, um, but uh, yeah, and I but it turned into like this insult to liberals, and I forgot what it was, but I mean, there's some weird explanation as to why liberals are cucks. But the tech, the definition of a cuck is a guy who uh, someone fucks his wife and he watches. That's being a cuck. So it's, like, <laughs> it's being used metaphorically. Yeah, I mean, there's some weird, like... An attempt at it. Yeah, but that's, I mean, it's so fucking funny. I know this has nothing to do with gentrification, but it's hilarious. I mean, I mean don't be I don't a know. Cuck. It's something that I... A word I've, <laughs> I've seen used a lot. A libtard. Snowflake libtard. Yeah. Oh, boy. Anyway. Sorry. I got a little worked up there. Well, uh, we are we're getting close to wrapping up here. So any final final, final thoughts, final words? Uh, yeah. Well, um, you know, uh, fuck uh, Franklin 820. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm throwing these places under the bus. I don't give a shit. Um, don't go there. And it's just Summer Becca. Hill. Just Becca. It's, that's yes. that what she said. Not Rebecca. Just no, her, her name I, is really Becca. But she says I, it's just Becca. I'm sure she probably says that a lot. It's something Becca people, oh, I'm sure. people <laughs> like her usually say. Um, so, uh, well, fuck Franklin 820. Uh, fuck uh, Summerhill. Uh, they're both uh, terrible, terrible places in Crown Heights. Don't give them a dollar. Go. There's so many other bars that are not racistly tone deaf. Mm-hmm. So you can totally go there. Um, oh, I can plug shit, right? Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. dope. Uh, so, uh, I know I, I didn't like, I'm funnier than this, right? Like I felt like in retrospect, like I probably could have been funnier. <laughs> um, but I actually do, I, I do Hindsight's comedy. 2020. Yeah, it really is. Like, I feel like, fuck man. But the thing is, is I'm like just rebounding off of being sick. So it's like, I don't know. Um, but I, I held my own, uh, in talking about this. Um, anyway, I say that to say that you go to gymsearchcomedy.com. Uh, you can find uh, all things comedy related. Um, and also, you can go on all social media and find me at Jim Search. Uh, if you like uh, Jesse the Catfish, right, it's a play I wrote. Uh, it's about the time that I was almost uh, catfished on Tinder. Um, you can go to jimsearchcomedy.com and you look at uh, Jesse, the Cal- Jesse the Catfish calendar, and it has all the dates for the play. And we have a play coming up. Uh, what is it? September 27th, 7 and 9 o'clock at the Tank, 312 West 36th Street. It's I basically rewrote Hamilton. Uh, it's probably the greatest piece of play, right, that you'll ever see. Ever. <laughs> I did see it. It's listening. funny. Yeah. So go see yeah. it. So I can't wait to see it because I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> like, I, I turned down work. I was like, nope, I got something to do this weekend. Oh, man. <laughs> or this, this Wednesday. This Wednesday night. Uh, you know, if you need me after 6 p.m., I'm sorry. I got plans. Well, I got plans. Good, good. You have a night of theater. theater. And the great thing about it, too, is, is that, you know, I've worked with such a great team on it. Uh, shout out to Craig Friedman, uh, Andrew Carbone uh, for helping put this together. But there's new stuff happening in each play. So the play that right. you saw is going to be different than the play that's going to be happening this great. Wednesday. And then we have another run at the pit on October 9th. Mm-hmm. There's going to be different shit in that play, too. So, you know, it's it's uh, if you're a repeat customer, you will not be disappointed. All right. Beautiful. Um, so, yeah, that, those are my plugs. Um, and, you know, thank you for having me. Uh, this was fun. Uh, well, it was fun, but like not fun, fun. Like it's uh, a it's a tough topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll try to have a, a, yeah. a more fun topic next time. Yeah. Right? Yeah, this man. Let's yeah. talk about Instagram hoes next time. Yeah. That'll be, yes. fun. That'll be a fun topic. You I know should. I'm not supposed to say hoes, but you know, whatever. Uh, hoes with an e e a e a u x. Yes. That Get is the right correct. way. That is the right way to say hoes. Um, but yes, again, thank you so much uh, for having me on. Uh, this was, uh, this was a, a, we're, it was definitely a conversation uh, that I am passionate about, and I'm glad you guys uh, tapped me to talk about it. 
I'm glad that you were on. And thanks for, thanks ho- for being hosting here. Jim Jam Studios. Man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is my first time here hosting my show. I've been here as a guest on Jim's podcast. Oh, shit. I need to plug uh, two more things before I go. Uh, Swatches of Boomboxes is a podcast, which you were on. Yes. Um, it's about 90s hip-hop. It's really great. You should download it. It's me and Neil Charles. And it's, so dope. It's, it's, a, it's a great show, um, and you should totally download it. And also, if you like Bar Rescue, the TV show, you should download Shut It Down, the Bar Rescue recap, because we cover each episode of Bar Rescue with my friend Max Cohen, and we have our 50th episode coming up, and we are going to be covering the classic pirate episode. It's amazing. Shut it down! All right. Uh, and if you have if you have any questions, this is a, a topic, you know, it's an ongoing topic. If you have any comments or questions or any thoughts, please send us an email. You can follow us on Instagram, Tilly Truth uh, Radio, and also send us an email to truthradio at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts, um, maybe even some suggestions of, you know, the next topics that we have. Tell us what you're thinking about. So follow us, send us an email, and continue to listen to us yeah and as always follow me matt the godfather at matt the godfather m-a-t-d-a-g-o-d-f-a-t-h-a instagram twitter uh check out my single caribbean girls featuring qq and j diamonds and yeah that's it uh telling it like it is is produced by myself matt e veronica ely and zara vignola and special thanks to Maddie Ely for handling our social media. We are not Democrats. We're not Republicans. We're not conservatives. We're not liberals. We're realists, and we're always telling it like it is.